<laughs> so turn with me this morning to Ezra chapter 9, and we're going to read again from this chapter. While we do that, I just want to reiterate what Sean was saying. Man, we preach week after week from this pulpit. You've heard it. I want to say it again and again. One church, one body, one Christ, one baptism, one Holy Spirit. Right? You've heard this again and again, the unified church, not one hope or shofar or any of these other things and their little clicks. We are one body in Christ, all right? So next weekend, I want to encourage you. It's not a skive weekend. It's not a weekend to think, well, no one's going to be there, so no one's going to know. Get there to the Baptist church. It's going to be amazing on the Sunday. It's at the Pick and Pay Center in the center of town. We've got 70-odd folk going to the student camp up in Sutherland next weekend, so a whole bunch of us are going going to be up there having fun and the rest of you the time up the mountain with every nation is powerful as we went up last year we took um, little steps along the way to remember Christ going up Golgotha up the hill towards that to his own crucifixion and we took time to think it through a short sermon up the top and worship it's powerful get there this is the kind of practice of what we talk about in theory when we speak about the unity of the church this is part of us modeling that And then we're not going to come back into Ezra for a while because we're going to go into Nehemiah. Everyone's like, at last, we're going into Nehemiah. So in two weeks' time, we're going to Nehemiah because next week, we're going to the Baptist Church, right? You're with me there. And the week after that, we have some of our really great friends who are familiar to you, Lex and Joe, who lead Jubilee Inner City. They're going to be with us ministering on the last weekend of April. So that's in two weeks' time. And then we're going to hit Nehemiah. But for now, we're still in Ezra. So let me start my timer so that we don't keep you here for too long. And let's go. Ezra chapter 9 and verse 1. After these things had been done. So guys, when we read that, what do we have to ask? Which things? What's been done? Okay, now if you're just joining us, I'm going to quickly catch you up. So what's happened is that the Israelites again have sinned against God. God's taken them into captivity with the Babylonians, ringing bells if you've been here for a while. All right, the Babylonians are then overthrown by Cyrus, king of Persia. Cyrus, the king of Persia, sends the first wave of exiles back with Zerubbabel. Great name if you're pregnant. Right there, Zerubbabel, fantastic name sends them back. Their main job is to rebuild the temple. That's what they go back to do. Now, the, the, the difficulty when you're reading a narrative like Ezra and Nehemiah is that you don't get the span of years. So it's 70 years later after that first wave of exiles, Ezra is commissioned by the next king of Persia to come back and to build community in Jerusalem and to teach them the Torah. So reestablish the religious traditions of the Jewish people in Jerusalem. So there's been this group 70 years later. This is now the second exile. Ezra's just got there. They've just had a huge party in chapter 7 and chapter 8 and chapter 9. This is what it says after these things had been done. That's where we're at, all right? The officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the land with their abominations. It goes through a list of these people. Verse 2, for they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons. And this is the verse we're going to focus on this morning. So that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. So that the holy race has mixed itself with the people of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost, i.e., the leaders have led the way in doing this. 
As soon as I heard this, says Ezra, I tore my garments and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. In other words, I was greatly in distress. I'm pulling out my own clumps of beard. It's hardcore. The New Living Translation says it like this, this little verse 2b. So the holy race has become polluted. Think about that word. The holy race has become polluted by these mixed marriages. In Hebrew scripture, now I want to just pause when I say a phrase like that. Because I don't want you to ever think you shouldn't read the Bible if you don't know Hebrew, Aramaic, or Greek, right? But occasionally, so 99% of your reading of the Word of God, your English in front of you is absolutely 100% perfect. Occasionally, it's helpful to go and look at the original language to see the way it's been translated. Is it useful? And all I want to say is that race is a very useful word here. It's the word seed. So it really is talking about a group of people, a racial kind of group of people that have been put together. So it's a racial word, all right? So this is what he's saying, that there's this holy group of people, this race, this seed, these descendants, and they have polluted themselves by mixing with another race, with another group of people. All right, I'm going to stop there. And we're going to pray because you can see that this is going to be a challenging text as we talk about racism this morning, all right? So, Father, as we come to your word, we want to ask, Lord, that you would do so much more in our hearts than just stimulate our minds and and stimulate our thinking and our intellect. God, we want you to get in behind our defenses, Lord. God, where we are racist, we want to see it. We want to change. Where we misunderstand your word, we want to have you reveal it to us in a way that brings life, that brings joy and hope where there's destruction and and destroying. The enemy comes and destroys in our families and our community and our country, God. Lord, would you come and mature us, speak to us. Father, even as right now, there may be some sitting here who don't even know you, who sit with cynical thoughts and unbelief in their heart. Lord, even to them this morning, would you speak through your word? In the powerful name of Jesus, we ask these things. Amen. So we're going to go after some big questions, all right? So the first one is this. Is God racist? Is God racist? And does he prefer a certain race? Or does he have his, his kind of group of people that he's, that he's favoring much more than anyone else? His seed. So when, when we hear that, right, we've got to pause And we've got to think right up front how relevant this question is to our South African context. Just think about this question, is God racist? The obvious issues around racism and segregation in our country to the point where we literally had borders and we transported a word across the whole world. Isn't it crazy that the only word I can think of that's been transported across the whole world from South Africa is apartheid? Bras never really caught on. Lacquer hasn't caught on, but the whole world knows about apartheid. Isn't that tragic? Isn't it crazy that a whole lot of the apartheid thinking and inverted commas theology came through some warped interpretation of scripture, backed up by segments of the South African church, must be said not all, not even most perhaps, but certainly a significant section of the church. They were pushing this idea that there's a chosen race and a not chosen race. In fact, they pushed it so hard that they put the chosen race in one section and the not chosen race in another section. 
And so for many, the conclusion that Christianity is a white religion is not hard to imagine how they concluded that when it's been pushed forward by the church that you're superior if you're white and that, that this religion is being used to suppress you, to westernize you if you're of another color. So what God says about the issue of racism, what God thinks about the issue of racism is profound in our context, right? And then I think it's profound on another level because while the racism question is easy on one part, easy in the sense of being able to understand, not in the sense of outworking it, there's another, I think there's another deeper layer here. I think the layer is, isn't the Christian claim to the exclusivity of the gospel, that Jesus is the only way, isn't that kind of the same sort of extension of thinking? You know, like almost like a Christian apartheid, like you're in, like a religious apartheid, you're in and you're out, and you're welcome and you're not welcome. Are you with me? Now, of course, no one in our generation, no one's going to come up to you and say it perhaps in those words, but this is how the 21st century generation might say it to you. I just can't believe in a God who demands exclusivity. What gives you the right to claim that your way is the way? What gives you the right to somehow claim that your truth claim is superior to my truth claim? Anyone heard anything like that? Or maybe they phrase it in a a different way. This is a very subtle one, and we get on the back foot when we hear a a question posed like this. Isn't God defined as love? Isn't God defined as love? So then surely he's all about inclusivity. Surely he's all about everyone being included. Otherwise, people get excluded. And by nature of exclusion, that means they get rejected. And then they get hurt. And if they hurt, then it can't be love. So how can God be loving and excluding people? And they turn to us and they say, choose. You must choose. Either God is good and loving and inclusive or he's exclusive and that proves that he's not good or loving at all. Are you waking up with me? Are you there? Hello. Hopefully I'm hitting a few nerves in our hearts this morning. I made up a word. It's called a Christianist. It's like, you know, like a racist. And sometimes maybe the accusation comes against us that we're a Christianist. Like we, we some kind of religious apartheid. So let's get back to Ezra. We're going to come back to some of these thoughts around exclusivity and inclusivity. We're going to come back to some of those thoughts a little bit later on. But let's get back into Ezra. And let me ask a very simple question. Are these people acting in a racist way? Are they acting in a, do you know what circle the wagons mean? Like, you know, like with the, with the old loggers, with the Afrikaners, they'd, they'd turn all the wagons and they'd face them inside. Inside, they'd be all nice and safe. And the outside would be like where all the wild things are. You know, and it's like, no, we're going to just be us four and no more. And we're going to keep it like nice and safe. Are they doing that? Honestly, yes. That's exactly what it, it looks like in the text. And I'm not going to in any way defend that this morning, all right? So I think that Ezra, and we're going to get into a little bit of context just now, but I think that they are deeply afraid. We're going to look at some of the texts in Ezra chapter 9 where you can see some of his fear coming out. And this is so often the driver of racism, isn't it? Fear. Not knowing. What are you going to take? Who are you? What do you, what do you want from me? So here's what we're going to do in the time that we have. You all got one of these? 
Did you get one of these on your, on your, on your seats? Okay. So this was from three, four weeks ago. We did a sermon. We've been, as we've been going through this book of Ezra and Nehemiah, we've been asking, why are we even in the Old Testament? Is the Old Testament relevant? And one of the things we did is we said, what do you do when you get to extremely difficult passages? How do you, how do you respond when you reach a passage of, of the Bible and you're like, this doesn't look like God. This doesn't look good. I better leave Christianity. How are you going to respond? And so these are the five things that we spoke about in that sermon. Now we're going to use these again this morning. We're going to keep those two thoughts in mind. Is God racist? And is God some kind of religious apartheid uh, exclusive kind of God? Those are the two thoughts, the big thoughts we're keeping in our mind. And then we're going to use these five points to just look at this passage this morning and go through it step by step using these tools. Then we're going to apply into our lives. What does this mean for us? And then we're going to close off with, I want to just make a, a, an argument around why I believe Christianity is inclusive, even though it's exclusive in some ways. Sound like fun? Great, it did to me. All right, so we're going to do this in, in a, a kind of jumbled way. I've, I've gone, number th- I think it's number three, number two, number four, number one, number five, something like that. And the reason for that is that it just helps with the, the flow of thinking of where we're going. So I want to start with number three, and number three is this. God instructing the Bible scribes to faithfully record a story of event, a story or event, is not his endorsement of it. All right, now the big idea here was that God records faithfully not just the highlights reel of his best people now. He doesn't just record his favorite leaders doing the best things they've ever done and exclude. That's part of why, for me, the Bible is so credible. Because God is outing his people all over the place. David in adultery. Peter denying Jesus three times. How do you start a movement and put the leader at the top? You don't out him before you start the movement by telling everybody, hey, this is the guy who denied me three times. And yet the Bible is explicit in its failures of its leaders. And so God, while he is telling us about the events, is not always endorsing what's going on. And that's a critical Bible reading tool that you need to have in your hands. Okay, so I think that we can immediately agree off the bat that this is a case in point. Ezra chapter 9 verse 2, God is telling a story of these guys that then go on to divorce their wives and take the kids and send them away with their children. All right? When you... We're going to speak about this just now, but that is not God's endorsement. That is God telling you a story. Then we're going to go to number two, and number two is think big picture. What does the whole Bible say rather than just minute detail? Sometimes we read a verse and we get into this little verse, and just if you read that one verse by itself, man, you can make a big theology out of that one verse. You can, you can take your church down a whole little path on just that one verse, or it's exactly what they did in apartheid take a few verses, rip them out of context, switch them around to make it prove the thing we wanted to prove. Boom! That's how we can read the text. But what, what we are encouraged to do as we come to difficult texts, in fact, any of the texts, but difficult ones in particular, is that we've got to zoom out. So let's do that. We're going to do two clicks. We're going to do one click out and just look a little bit closer, but in Ezra itself, and then we'll do one wider one. So who is this group? If we think about this group of people that Ezra has arrived to lead, who are they? Well, as I said at the beginning, there's actually two groups. Ezra has just arrived with one of the groups, right? This is the group that's coming from Babylon. They're the wave of second exiles. But there's also another group who were the wave of first exiles, who came 60 years ago. 
Those are the guys who built the temple. And if you go back, just flip back a few pages in your Bible or on your device or whatever you want, and if you go back a few chapters to chapter 6, verse 21, you'll see that as they finish building the temple, they have this huge celebration. It's called the Passover. Remember back to Exodus, the Passover? And this is what happens. The Passover meal, verse 21, Ezra 6, was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile. So that's the first group. And by the others in the land, the people of the land that Batesy was talking about two weeks ago, who had turned from their corrupt practices to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. So who's welcome at this Passover feast? The sacred Jewish, quintessentially Jewish feast. Who's welcome? The exiles, as well as the people of the land, so long as they had turned from their corrupt ways and were now following God. Yahweh. And so you can see right there in Israel, with just one click, just one tiny little step back. Do you know what I mean by a click? Like a camera click, you know. Sorry, I'm using a funny word. But one step back, you can see that this was not even an issue of race in the same book, but rather an issue of religious practice. Suddenly you get to Ezra 9, and the pictures change substantially. And it's like, no, this is an issue of race and from keeping this holy seed from being polluted. Now let's step out one click further and a little bit of Bible trivia, right? If you were to make a case that God did not want Israelites to marry foreign women, what would be the first thing you would do? Well, you would go and look at some of the great leaders, right? So a little bit of Bible trivia, which of the great Israelite leaders married people who were not Jewish? Ha, who shouted? Someone, someone shouted Moses. Ryan. Where's that chocolate we had over there? Can you, no, I'm just kidding. But it would have been great, eh? If you had. So who did Moses marry? Who did Moses marry? He married a woman called Zipporah. Zipporah was the daughter of a Midianite priest. All right? The counts of the Midianite people are that they were a black nation. So Moses has not married an Israelite. Now remember, who's writing this? Ezra. Where's he getting his? Come on, guys, this is not a trick question. We've been here for like seven weeks. Where's he getting his law from? Oh, all the way back from the Torah. Who wrote the Torah? Who was Moses married to? Ah, interesting, isn't it? Who else can you think of? Someone needs to shout out clearly. Okay, I'll give you some. All right, Joseph. Think about Joseph. Who's he marry? He marries an Egyptian woman. Think about Boaz. Boaz in the line of Jesus. Who did he marry? He married Ruth. Who's Ruth? Well, she's a Moabites. She's not an Israeli. All right, so even when you look out and you zoom out a little bit, these stories which are mostly told in the Torah lead you to think, well, I wonder, surely the Torah then doesn't say we shouldn't marry Israelite people. Is that following reason? So what we're going to do is we're quickly going to go in there and have a look. So Exodus 34 is a great place. And actually, this is where most theologians believe that Ezra was taking his text from, is Exodus 34 and verse 12. This is Moses writing to his nation as they're about to go into the promised land. God has told them, you're not going in, buddy. So he's preparing them as best as he can for Joshua to lead them into the promised land. And this is what he says to them. When you get to this land, 
is the context. Verse 12, be very careful never to make a treaty with the people who live in the land where you are going. If you do, you will follow their evil ways and be trapped. Instead, you must break down their pagan altars, smash their sacred pillars, cut down their Asherah poles. You must worship no other gods for the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, which means Yahweh, whose very name is jealous, is a God who is jealous about his relationship with you. You must not make a treaty of any kind with the people living in the land. They lust after their gods, offering sacrifices to them. They will invite you to join them in their sacrificial meals, and you will go with them. How incredibly prophetic are the words of Moses. If you do, you will follow their evil ways and be trapped. You will go with them. Then think of kings and Samuel and Isaiah and Jeremiah and all the different prophets crying out, Why are you an adulterous nation turning again and again and again against God? And remember last week, we don't look in on judgment saying, We would never have done that. All right, remember that. They will invite them, you to join them in their sacrificial meals and you will go with them. Then you will accept their daughters who sacrifice to other gods as wives for your sons. And they will seduce your sons to commit adultery against me by worshiping other gods. Now, if I had to ask you, what is the focus of this passage? It's not that hard. My 11-year-old girl will, will read that passage and she will know what the focus of that passage is. The focus of that passage is this. Here's the, here's the progression. Drive out the people. Don't make any covenants with them. If you make a treaty with them, they will trap you in their evil ways. Don't accept the way that they worship. Cut down their poles. Smash their gods. Break down their altars. Don't leave them there as some kind of historic relic. Take them out because you will turn and you're going to worship these gods. And I want you to worship me. I want you to worship Yahweh. Don't adopt their worship practices. Don't go to their feasts. Don't get involved. Because if you do, this will lead you to marrying into the other God-worshipping system. And as you marry them, you will give allegiance to their gods. And your allegiance will slip from me. What is the focus of the passage? It's not race, is it? It's not even marriage, is it? The focus of the passage is God saying to his people... Guys, here's a new land. I'm, I'm taking you into this new land. It's going to be beautiful. But in this new land, there's this group of people and they worship like this and like this and blah, blah, blah. But I want you to worship me fundamentally different. The issue in this text is not marriage at all. The issue is, will you follow me faithfully? That's the question in the text. Will you follow me, Israel? Will you follow me faithfully? Man, and this is such a powerful question for us this morning, isn't it? Think about your Christian walk. Could you describe it as faithful? One of these days, I've, I've got a preach busy brewing called In Praise of Faithfulness. And I'm going to give you the main point right now. I want to preach about how we use faithfulness as a kind of ach shame word. You know, like when we can't think of anything nice to say about someone, we say, oh, you know, but, but they 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 faithful. Aren't they? They just show up, you know. They're so reliable. Actually, it's one of the words that God most often uses to self-declare about himself. He's, I'm, I'm a faithful God. It's one of the things that we most love about God. Anyway, that's another sermon. In praise of faithfulness, coming to a city soon near you. 
But the, the movement in the text is quite subtle, but it's very powerful because it starts off in Exodus with God saying, I want a people. I want a people, and this is what my people are going to look like. My people are going to worship me faithfully. They're going to, they're going to not bow down and adulterate themselves to other gods and idols. And it ends up in Ezra chapter 9, no longer a people of faithfulness, but a race of exclusivity, but a seed. Do you see the shift? And so when we see a text like Boaz marrying Ruth, which I referenced just now, when you read it in the first time and you're like, hey, if you think, if you think God's like just called out an Israelite nation and no one else was welcome, then you read that text and you're like, this doesn't quite make sense. But then you realize that actually the whole story of Ruth is this incredible, this drama, unfolding drama of redemption. And as Naomi, her mother-in-law, says to her, go back to your people, she says, no, I want to come with you. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. And God welcomes her in, and Boaz marries her, and she forms part of the line of Jesus. Why? Because he's not after a race, he's after a people. Will you be faithful to me, is his cry. Can you see how powerful it is to think about Scripture zoomed out rather than just getting stuck and spending 15 life group meetings on the one issue of is God racist from Ezra chapter 9 verse 2? Please don't do that. <laughs> or any other Christian issue that we spend disproportionate amounts of time on instead of worrying about whether God wants to change us and move us on and mature us and grow us. So how did Ezra get here? How did Ezra end up in this place? Let's look at number four. Have grace for context. What are they facing? What is Ezra feeling as a man? What is he feeling as a leader in this moment? What don't they know that we know today? As an example, a very obvious example, none of them had the teachings of Christ. It's easy to stand and say, well, we know divorce is terrible. You know, Jesus said don't. He didn't have that. And we stand in, in this judgment. Now remember that if we read point four, have grace for context. If we read the scripture without, sorry, if we read the scripture without point four, we end up doing exactly what we spoke about last week. Where we sit in judgment. If I had been there, would I have told them where to go? And we read the text as if we would somehow have done something dramatically different and what this does is that instead of stirring empathy in our hearts it stirs judgment so when we read the text without endorsing it without saying oh shame maybe he was right we don't have to do that but we need to read it with empathy so let's think about his culture and his context quickly i've put, i've thrown out this challenge once i'm going to throw it out again this morning if any of you can prove me wrong i'd love to hear from you i believe and i can see that this is the only generation that has celebrated the individual over community not that's alive and around now that's ever existed and no one has refuted me yet so if you can that'll be interesting but i'll have to do like a public apology but i, I can't see another generation of people who have been so individual individualistically focused yes our family is a little bit important but everything else is opt in opt out i want to go to church i opt in i want to go out of church i opt out it's like a membership I want to go to a club, I go to a club. I want to go out of the club, I go out of the club. 
We do what we want. We don't think about the community. We don't think about Kayamandi that's right there and we're living in, in Dibut or wherever it is we're living and we think, well, I'm in my community. I'm okay. We don't think about community. We think about community. Moi. Now, when we think like that and we focus like that, it's incredibly difficult to imagine how a person in a, in a, a leadership position in a, in a culture where, I'm struggling with my words here, in a culture where community is paramount, where community is treasure, where community is the most beautiful thing that you have, it's very difficult to imagine how hard it must be to see that community diminishing your racial community diminishing and beginning to panic and being like, oh my goodness, we're the last few. We're the last few. And look at his, look at his verse in verse 8 in chapter 9. Look at Ezra's deep concern. But now, verse 8 of chapter 9, we've been given a brief moment of grace for the Lord our God has allowed a few of us to survive as a remnant. There's just a few of us left. Look at verse 14. God, won't your anger be enough to destroy us so that even this little remnant no longer survives? He's like, God, we've got to circle the wagons. God, it's got to be this little group. We've got to keep it pure, God. Can you, can you read the fear? And we've got to have grace for context. How about this for grace for his context? Do you know that in some ways, Ezra is facing a situation where there's no direct Bible teaching on it. There's no verse that says, don't marry anyone ever. And he's looking back on his history and he's thinking Moses, he's thinking Joseph, all these things would have been in his head. And so he's got to take a view. He's, he's on one side pulled massively by this community that he's trying to keep pure and he's, he's so driven by this community and, and trying to do it right. And on the other hand, he's trying to, he's trying to figure this whole thing out and he's, he's, he's like in between these views and he's, he's got to take truth. He's got to, he's got to present something. So what does he present? And Ezra in that moment makes, do you know what the word exegesis means? It's where you take scripture and you've got to pull it out and, and, uh, Explain it to a point where you reach a conclusion. That's what we're trying to do this morning. Ezra had to do that. He had to take an issue. There wasn't that much clarity around. And he had to make some calls. And I think he made the wrong ones. So while it doesn't make it right in any way, it can lead us to have empathy. And to remember that we are just like that. Because guys, aren't there calls facing us as a church, as a people, as a 21st century breathing, living person where the scripture doesn't speak that clearly? Aren't there calls where we've got to look at scripture and say, God, help. What do we do? How do we respond to this, God? There's no clear instruction. Number one on your little bookmark says this. Look for what the passage says about wisdom, wisdom, rather than looking for a method to follow. In other words, we're not always trying to copy. We don't want to do what Ezra did and say, right, hands up, who's done this, who's done this, right? You guys are getting divorced, off with your kids, off to France, and the rest of you, you can stay. So we don't copy his methodology, but there's wisdom that we look for in the text, and we ask, what is the wisdom? God, what do you want to show us 
from this text that was included in the scripture for some reason, right? Here's a big one. I've got a few for you. A big piece of wisdom out of the scripture. Breaking news. Leaders get it wrong. Leaders get it wrong. Some of you are sitting here this morning and you are hurting because leaders got it wrong. Jesus doesn't want to leave you there. He wants to bring you to a place of forgiveness and wholeness. But I want you to hear that godly leaders, doing the best they know how, waking up every morning and thinking, how can I help people be more mature in God? Get it wrong. I said this two weeks ago. I might be the source of your distress right now. The email I didn't get back to, the WhatsApp, uh, uh, the, the rudeness that you, uh, you heard me snap at someone when I was impatient. Leaders get it wrong. Do you know how I know? The clue is in the little word human. Great little word. Here's another little piece of wisdom out of this text. When we face issues that have no clear scriptural teaching, be prayerful and careful because it matters what conclusions we reach. It matters. I've already spoken about that out of turn just now. The third piece of wisdom is this. It's very similar to the second one. But don't let the issues that are pushing in on you as a leader or as a person, don't let them cloud out the obvious intent of Scripture. Sometimes we feel so much pressure from the world, so much pressure from our friends, so much pressure from the culture and what everyone's saying to us that we begin to try and change Scripture. When Scripture's been there forever and our culture's been here for like, what, a couple of hundred years so Ezra did this because of fear, because he's afraid that this little remnant that he's trying to bring through, this tiny little remnant, they're about to be destroyed. God, you might destroy us. They, now for a brief moment, you've given us this little period of grace that we can use to keep this remnant alive. Ezra, because of fear, he's prone toward racism. He's prone in this text towards closing ranks. Come, 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 keep, keep close, keep close. The little chicken's under the mother's wing. I mean, that, it, it doesn't seem when you read Exodus 34 that, that's, that Ezra's conclusion is the obvious conclusion, does it? But what about us today? When we think of huge cultural pressure to change what is obvious and clear in God's Word, what are our temptations? We're not exempt to them. And we've got to be aware of that, that as we approach God's word, we have bias. We have temptation. Think about the current conversation in even evangelical Christianity around homosexuality. Think about how that is being taught and spoken about and thought about. And suddenly there's huge, huge social pressure on the church to change its views. And people within the church are beginning to preach and say, I've heard some of it, to begin to say, no, what the Bible actually meant was this. It didn't actually mean that, it meant this. And so they're beginning to shift it to a space where people are legitimately, Christian people, are legitimately being able to say, I can engage in same-sex relationships and not have anything between me and God because of it. Now what's going on? Culture is interpreting 
Scripture. That is what is happening because that has not been interpreted like that for thousands of years. And all of a sudden, for the first time in church history, we're beginning to wonder about what the Apostle Paul really meant. And now that's just one example of multiple examples that we could go after. The fifth and last point on your little bookmark. You know why we made a bookmark? So you can put it in your Bible because you're going to read a whole lot more texts that are going to be difficult. If you read on a device, take a picture, put it in your favorite pictures so you've got access to it. So you can go and hit hit a difficult verse and say, what am I going to do with this? This is what number five says. When you can't trace the hand of God, you can always trust his heart. It's a Charles Spurgeon quote. When you can't trace the hand of God, you can always trust his heart. While number three was interested in zooming out on the whole of the Bible, this is a kind of similar point, but zooming out on God. What is the character of God? Who, who does the Bible, who does the whole Bible reveal God to be? So the question we were asking is, who does this tell, what does this tell us about God? Is God racist? Is the question we were asking. And as we've gone through these different texts, I hope, I hope that you're sitting on exactly the same page as me where you have a resounding no in your heart that the thought of God being racist is the most foreign thought that you could possibly imagine. He's anything but. And apart from the things I was speaking about, when we just think about a few more things, you think about Abraham's covenant. And God comes to this man, Abraham, and what does he say to him? The first thing he says, I want to bless who through you? Who does he want to bless? All nations. What's the heart of God? What is the heart of God? It's all people, all nations, everyone who will be faithful to him. Or think about the fact that this little exegesis mistake that Ezra makes in Ezra chapter 9 actually becomes a backbone, if you think about it, of the Jewish culture from that time forward. So before that, Zerubbabel and some of the other prophets, if you go and read them, are prophesying about a temple where all nations will come and worship God. And some of what we've spoken about in this, is, it's, it's like jarring. There's this anticlimactic moment where they come to Zerubbabel and say, we want to build with you, and he goes, no thanks. And you're like, but hang on, the contemporary prophets of the day, they're prophesying at the same time. Some of them are even involved later on in the building. Those guys are saying, we're going to build a temple and everyone's going to be part of it and everyone's going to come to it. And they missed a moment there. And Bates was speaking about that two weeks ago. But that exegetical mistake that Ezra makes, from that moment you begin to see this race idea running through the Jewish nation, to the point where we hit the New Testament and Jesus comes and what's one of the hardest things for them to get their mind around? That the salvation is not just for them. That's one of the hardest things for them to get their minds around. They're constantly surprised. You're healing a Gentile? And Jesus turns and looks at the, and Jesus turns and looks at the, the Roman centurion and says, I've never seen faith like this in all of Israel after just healing his girl. Or you think about Acts chapter 10, when, when they've just, uh, Peter has gone and been in Cornelius' house and the Holy Spirit falls, and Peter stands back aghast. He's stunned. This is the apostle who's been with Jesus for three years. He's leading the early church. He's, he's at the forefront of the early believers, and yet they, there's like this, this, they, they're incredulous. They write to the other guys and they say, Oh, you weren't there. The Holy Spirit fell. He showed no discrimination between Jew and Gentile, and they're amazed. Because in their head, 
they're still thinking race. Jew. That's why God had to raise up Paul. See, what does Jesus himself say? I didn't come to heal the righteous. It's the sick who need a doctor. I didn't come to save the righteous. I came after the sick. Let's talk for the next five minutes or so. Are you still with me? Are you guys all right? You're quite quiet out there. I know we're talking about big topics. I know it's a lot of hard work doing Ezra and Nehemiah, so well done. I want to encourage you as well, as we go in two weeks into Nehemiah, it's so good. Just between, I'll, I'll do some of the hard work and some of the other preachers, we'll do some of the hard work and bringing some of the context and whatever else on a Sunday morning. But just do the easy work in your devotions. Get into it. Read it. Think about it. Pray about it. Ask God to speak to you. It's a beautiful space. So let's think about some application into our own lives. Has that been helpful, going through one to five? Could you do that? Absolutely you can. We're trying to put tools in your hand. More than just a good sermon, we want tools in your hands. You guys can do this. So here's the question God is asking. Will you faithfully follow me? Will you faithfully follow me? Now one of the stories... Actually, last week, after the, the, the sermon, one of our newest members, sitting over there somewhere, I won't mention his name, is a man of color. Thank you, Jesus, for that. And I'm, I mean that sincerely. Guys, we are praying that God would diversify us. Look around you. Aren't there too many white folk here? Look at the person next to you and say, you're too white, man. You're too white. You're exempt, I tell you. But I'm, I'm sincere. I'm making a joke about it, but I'm really sincere. It's wonderful that God is adding slowly people of different colors into our midst. We need to learn from each other. We need to be more diverse. But back to the story. So he's studying theology. He's doing his master's in theology at Stellenbosch University. He came up to me last week, and he said one of his lecturers came up to him and said, I want to encourage you not to lose the ancestral worship part of your culture. One of our Stellenbosch theology lecturers, and that's not the only horror story I'm hearing out of there, so we need to pray for our guys that are in there, Peter and Jana and others. But here's the question God is asking, will you follow me faithfully? It means turning your back on all other gods and all other idols in our lives. So here's a great way that Ezra shows us that we can examine the idols in our own life. What, what makes you afraid? It's a great litmus test for your idols. What are you afraid to lose? What are you most afraid to lose? See, for Ezra, that was his race. For Ezra, he was terrified that this remnant would be shut out, that they would be excluded from God's future plans, that they would be abolished. That was what Ezra's fear was, and his fear made him completely miss the heart of God. And chapter 9 and 10 begins to detail how man after man came forward, and then they divorced their wives, and they took their children, and they sent them away. It's awful. And he missed the heart of God because of his fear. Now let me ask you this morning as we apply this into our lives. What is your Ezra fear? What is it? Are you most afraid of losing your wealth? If you woke up tomorrow and your big fat investments had gone down the drain because you'd invested in Bitcoin. 
Steinhoff? Is it losing reputation? Is that the great Ezra fear for you? You know how you can tell some of these when someone does something to damage your reputation? You're out like all fists. You know, like you're ready to kill, you're ready to fight because you you can't trust that God's going to be okay with your reputation. Maybe it's losing your career. Maybe that's your great fear. What if I have to be a stay-at-home mom? That thing can become an idol. Maybe it's your health. Maybe it's your family. What about if your fear is just flat-out fear-driven racism? Can God get behind that defense in our hearts this morning? As we think about land in our country and all the fear running around that, when we we think about crime and what if it was your daughter and what if it was your wife and these bright conversations that we have that drive this, this agenda of fear and racism in our Christian hearts, let's not pretend it's not there. Whatever that thing is, that fear, that fear, That's our idol. Those things are our idols. And that is where we are going to be most sorely tested. When you think about turning to Scripture and having to exegete Scripture correctly. So have to, let me use another word. When we have to reach accurate conclusions about what the Bible says correctly, the thing which blinds us most are our idols and our fears. Because if I'm terrified to lose my wealth, how do I read all the scriptures about money? If I'm terrified to place my trust in God that maybe what he considers looking after me is not what I'm happy with, then I read a whole bunch of scriptures around generosity and open-handedness and giving. I read them very differently, don't I? What about if it's my health? That's my big concern. If my health is my, if my whole life objective is to stay alive and keep my health for as long as possible and live to 155, then when we read scripture and we face illness as we do, as this community has experienced, as we've lost people and grieved and loved on people, as we, as we face those things, then when we exegete scripture, when we reach conclusions around scripture, we want to show that everything is here and now, that we, that we healed right now in Jesus' name. And we're afraid to push a ship out onto the ocean and say, God, I trust you with my health. I trust you with that diagnosis. I trust you with what you want to do. The sovereignty of God. Is God racist? Not in a million years. Are you? Probably. Am I? Definitely. Let's close this morning by talking about this issue of Christian exclusivity. And we're going to break bread communion together which is our habit and a beautiful habit it is so here's the question isn't the christian claim to exclusivity of the gospel in other words that jesus is the only way that you can only come through christ that you can't come through another religious door isn't that just an extension of this kind of racist thinking this religious apartheid you're in you're out there's the divide the wall is jesus you're in you're out Tim Keller shares some incredibly helpful things around this. And one of the things it says is that 
the truth is that every religion is essentially exclusive by nature, if you think about it. Every religion, and we'll look at a couple in a minute, but every one of them is, is a closing circle of acceptability. If you think about what does it take to be part of a religion, there's always certain things, especially if you're part of a religion, which is every other one except Christianity, which is do. You've got to do something. So then you've got to be part of a race or a whole bunch of other things. We'll talk about those in a moment. But think about Buddhism. Buddhism, as an example, has five precepts. Here they are. Don't kill. So if you killed someone, don't steal. Don't commit sexual misconduct. Don't have false speech. Don't consume intoxicants. Any of those things? You done any of those things? The circle just got a whole lot smaller. You're excluded. It's exclusive by nature. Even think about atheism. And don't tell me that atheism is not a religion. It's as faith-based as anything that we are basing our faith in. So the, the big question with atheism is, do you believe in God? And the minute that you say yes, are you not excluded? Can you be an atheist and believe in God? Well, of course you can't. Every religion by nature is exclusive in its essence. Now, I would argue, and this is what I want to finish with, that all beliefs are exclusive, but of all the exclusive beliefs that are in the world right now, and there's millions of them, Christianity is by far the most inclusive of all of them. And I'm not just going to leave it there. I'm going to tell you what I mean. I mean that in every other, like I've been saying, in every other belief system, it's a criteria for acceptance. Have you done enough? Do you dress right? Do you talk right? Do you behave right? Do you pray right? Do you eat right? You've got to be this kind of eater or that kind of eater. And there's this ever-decreasing limit of acceptance. But here's what the Bible says about exclusivity. Galatians 3, 28. There's neither Jew nor Gentile. This was a big issue. This was the big issue of the day. And Paul comes out and says there's no Jews. There's no Gentiles. Then he goes on and he says there's neither slave nor free. Another big issue of the day. So the slave sitting there and the free man sitting there are the same in Christ. Then he says there's neither woman nor man. Another big issue still today, right? That one's come right the way through. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. That's what Galatians 3.28 says. Matthew 11.28 says it like this. Come to me, Jesus says. Come to me. Inclusivity, right? Come to me, all of you. What's the qualification? All of you who labor and are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. John 3.16, you know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. John 6.35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So here's the Bible's ring of people that can be Christians. Here's the Bible's ring of, of exclusivity of who can come to this kingdom. Who can come? Here's the list. Jew, Greek, slave, free, male, female, are you struggling? Do you labor? 
come? Are you thirsty? Are you hungry? Do you, do you feel like you've got this part of you which desperately needs more and you fill it up temporarily with, with women or with alcohol or with business or with success or with a great series that you just finished watching? But you know that just after a few days you get that empty, gnawing hunger again and you have this insatiable thirst inside of your heart and you know that it's not being filled. Jesus is speaking to that. And he says, that is the criteria for coming to me. He says, come, you're welcome. And so Christianity, I would argue again and again, in the same vein as Tim Keller, that it's the most inclusive of every single religion. There is nothing that can disqualify you. There's no race, no sin, nothing that keeps you out. And Christianity is necessarily exclusive around the truth claim that only Jesus is God. Because to tell you anything else would be the most horrible, terrible, unloving thing I could ever do. So if you don't follow him this morning, here's his invitation to you. Are you burdened? Are you burdened? Are you thirsty? Are you hungry? Are you tired of trying to fill it with Game of Thrones? or suits, or whatever else. He wants to ask you this morning, and this is for all of us, not just those who don't believe, are you racist? Are you so riddled with sin? I sat one morning this week, and I was just before my father, and I was journaling, and I was saying, Lord, I can't even figure out the motives of my own heart. Do you know that feeling when you, you like, you're trying to assess a situation, and there's motives, and there's Paulness, and then there's more Paulness, and then there's sin, and there's Jesus, and there's like all this junk, and I'm just trying to just figure out myself, and then I still got to come and lead you lot, you know. And you're sitting there, and you're like in your insecurity, and you're like, God, help me. Are you racist? Are you riddled with sin? Are you an idol worshipper? Do you bow down to your specialized bicycle? Or the pictures of your grandchildren on the wall. Jesus says, believe, come. Will you have faith? Will you shed the load of carrying your own good works? Come on, let's pray together as we close. Father, right now there may be people sitting here who want to respond to you in that way who this morning as the word is preached have been cut to the heart to say, yes, Lord, that's me. I don't know who you are. I don't know much about you, but I know that that's me. I'm thirsty. I'm hungry. I'm burdened. I'm the racist. God, right now, I want to ask you that in their hearts, Right now, guys, you can, if that's you, you can respond, right? I'm not going to make you stand up. I'm not going to make you put your hand up. I'm not going to make you come to the front. I just want to tell you that right now in your heart, you can begin. This is not the end point. This is the beginning by saying, Jesus, crying out and saying, I am a man or a woman, not worthy, but I believe that you are, and I want to put my faith in you. And I ask you to come and cleanse me and to purify me from all unrighteousness for your name's sake. 
And you can do that, and that's just a little step. Holy Spirit will flood your life. You'll begin to walk and live and think differently. And guys, there's so many of us, those who already believe, God, would you come and cut us to the heart? Lord, there's so many areas where it's so hard to see our motives and maybe none as difficult as this one of racism. To figure it all out, to have all the stories and all the experience and all the different things going on in our hearts and to be able to put it all on a table, it just seems like a mess. And I don't know, God, personally, I don't know where to start to sort out the racism in my own heart. But Lord, I serve a God of the impossible. I serve a God who comes and sorts it out and begins to show me day after day and week after week how I can respond to the grace that he's poured out on me with grace outward to other people. Lord, we pray for reconciliation in our land. Even as we gear up for our April fasting and prayer time, I mean our May one, you know what I meant. Lord, and we think about elections and reconciliation and your hand upon our nation. God, we don't need a different party. We don't need different policies. We need you. We need you in this land. Jesus, as we remember you in the breaking of bread, thanking you for what you've done, thanking you that we can celebrate with friends today. We bless your name. We bless your name, Lord. Can I encourage you this week, those of you in life groups, why don't you share a little bit around this, just get a bit vulnerable. I think we need to learn from one another and I think we need to take some of the masks off around our struggles. Where are we struggling? How are we struggling? And then we look to the gospel and say, what is the Jesus lens on this? How does he respond? How does he teach us to respond? There's, actual, there's, actually, there's actual ways. I think sometimes we leave it all up in the nebulous. There's actually ways, like practical ways, that God wants you and I to respond to racism in our country. To actually respond. So we need to take off our masks and we need to be honest. Some of you with color in the room, I need to ask you, be brave, be bold, share your, share your hearts with us. We need to learn from you. We need to know what you're facing. We need to know the struggles. We haven't had them. We can't know what we haven't had. But we need you to open up and share with us. On that note, let's take communion.